Hello, it's us. We're back. It's your Chapo for this week. It is me, Virgil, and Matt. And joining us for the first time ever, (laughs) the first time we have ever spoken to him in a recorded atmosphere, is Glenn Greenwald. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hey, it's really nice to meet you guys. Good to hear your voices for the first time. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Glenn is coming to us live from Rio, Brazil at the Compromat Compound. In which he does all of his treasons. How is it? How are things in Rio? Yes, surrounded by some really um, fine FSB agents. <laughs> there is absolutely no chance that we tried to have this conversation before and actually after an hour-long cat and mouse game, managed to force Glenn to confess to being a Russian agent in a Frost-Nixon-style discussion. Uh, unfortunately- I mean, we do need to be honest about it because Jeremy Scahill, who loves to gossip, um, as you probably know, I actually think that his calling in life was supposed to be a gossip columnist and went on Twitter shortly before we began recording and reported in his breathless tone that I actually, that we did do one and it got fucked up. As I think your audience probably will know by now, Will simply forgot to hit record on the conversation. You fucking idiot. And so we are <laughs> recording it a second time, but I think uh, it'll be better this time. Um, well, you are recording this time, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we yeah. are recording. Um, it, okay. I, th- I think it'll be better this time because uh, I want to. I want to hit you now, Glenn, with a a little bit of a late breaking uh, Twitter news. Mm. This uh, this sort of burbled up today. I don't know how online you've been today, but I'm wondering if I could get your reaction. Are you aware, sir, of the John Podhoritz Snippers saga? I am not. I would like to be. Could you okay. fill me in on that? Yes. Okay. Uh, for those not in the know, Schnippers is a chain of sort of burger lunch counter style restaurants in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, our boy John Podoritz of uh, Commentary Magazine and prolific uh, Twitter presence uh, went on a uh, sort of tweet meltdown today because Schnippers, uh, he ordered some treats from Schnippers <laughs> and they were not delivered in a prompt manner. So mm. it began with uh, him adding the official Snippers account to say, I made an order more than an hour ago. I've now called twice. Been put on hold for five minutes each time. I will now tweet out that no one should ever order from you every 15 minutes today and tomorrow. <laughs> adding, adding the corporate account is conservative praxis. Uh, this went on for four or five more tweets uh, in which he continued to to berate uh, Schnippers for uh, being late with his order until they finally relented and sent him a handwritten note and free food. So I think there's a lesson to be learned here about just how far you can get by being a whiny baby online. Yeah. I mean, there was a picture that circulated, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. I think it actually came from him, which is really bizarre. It was just indelibly burned into my brain, and I've done lots of therapy to try and erase it, and so far I've not had any success, but it was him in a pool with, like, a hat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know I know, the image you know you're talking about. revolting photo that could literally induce vomit, even it's... among people who haven't had a meal in, like, a week? Glenn, this is... So this... I think that he was just very hungry, is so my guess. Will he? So this was a handwritten letter that some employee at Schnippers yeah. had to write him because corporate yelled at him because uh, why? Why is this Eggman uh, screaming at our corporate uh, account? The the image that Glenn is referring to is like my Zapruder film, basically. Uh, what, what what did the letter say? Uh, the letter said it was like, "Hey, 
hey, John, like, real sorry, an hour is too long to wait. Like, please accept no, this not. order gratis and, you know, free treats for the whole office or something like that. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, that's conservatism. That that is that is the August tradition of Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley, whining publicly like a simpering baby oaf until someone comes over and personally wipes your fucking bottom. My favorite, uh, my favorite J Pod moment. I think it's Felix's too. Is uh, during the blizzard of a couple years back, a huge blizzard in New York City. He was livid at Bill De Blasio for doing the correct thing and shutting down the streets because he had opera tickets. And was like, to hell with this. I'm going out. I'm, gonna, I'm going to the opera. Uh, a shame for all of us that it didn't end like The Shining did. <laughs> um, but uh, so, Glenn, I'm, I'm glad we could uh, we could hip you to the uh, the Schnippers saga of uh, John Podoritz. It was one of one of the best Twitter meltdowns as of late. And uh, the, the truth is, he uh, got his way and evil continues to go unpunished in the world we live in. Um, however, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I actually um, woke up this morning to one of the most amazing tweets I've seen in a long time, which was from Rob Reiner. I was just to, about to ask you. It looks that. a little bit like John Pedoritz. Um And did you guys see this? He was incensed over the fact that Trump had tweeted mean things about former CIA director John Brennan and former Homeland Security. Secretary and General uh, James Clapper and went onto Twitter and said, um, when you libel John Brennan and James Clapper, you're libeling America. And it was the funniest thing because I wanted to go find on YouTube some clip where Archie Bunker was saying something like that to Meathead. And I found like immediately 10 of them, like these uber patriotic rants from Archie Bunker to Meathead, but like Meathead's actual tweet this morning was substantially more just uber nationalistic than anything Archie Bunker had ever said. And it's just this amazing irony. And of course, it got retweeted like 15,000 times by people in the resistance who would now have sprained fingers. Uh, Glenn, I, I swear to God, I was going to bring up the Rob Reiner tweet right after the, uh, the John Podhoritz one because I saw you mentioned it today. The full tweet is. When you libel James Clapper and John Brennan, you libel America. <laughs> the, the, the desperate attack on men who have given over 90 years of dedicated service to our country is clear evidence of a conscientiousness of guilt. So he, he's saying like, like Trump is indicting himself by um, libeling these people. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to, to open this conversation with... Maybe you could help us just give a, just a brief refresher course, a brief cheat sheet on who uh, James Clapper and John Brennan are and wh- how, what they've done in their 90 years of service to America. Of dedicated service. Well, I'm a little bit wary of doing it because I don't want to libel them because to libel them is to libel America. But Brennan was such an interesting case because in 2009, right after Obama was inaugurated, you, like they put up this trial balloon that they wanted John Brennan to be the director of the CIA. And I immediately started, I remembered, because uh, Jane Mayer had written a lot about John Brennan, that uh, he was one of the primary advocates of the rendition program under mm. Bush and Cheney, where they would, you know, the CIA would just go around the world to Italy or to Greece or Macedonia or wherever um, and just literally abduct people off the street that they thought they wanted to question and then send them to Egypt or, ironically, to Syria, 
where they would sit in dungeons and just get tortured for a year or so. Um, and then a lot of times the, the Syrians and the Egyptians would say, we don't actually want to keep torturing them because we don't really think they're guilty of anything. And then the U.S. would finally agree to let them go and they would just dump them back on the street wherever they found them, like in Germany or whatever. So Brennan was one of the primary advocates of that. He was also a, an advocate of all the various forms of torture other than waterboarding. Um, and then he oversaw the drone program under Obama, um, which he didn't get to be CIA director, but he became um, – I mean, he eventually did, um, but he, he, you know, he worked in the White House. He was Obama's key national security official. He oversaw the drone program that killed thousands of individuals. James Clapper is, amazingly enough, the person who actually was kind of the final straw on the camel's back that caused Edward Snowden to come forward because in early 2013, Snowden went to test, uh, Clapper went to testify before the Senate, uh, Judiciary Committee, um, and he was asked by Ron Wyden, does the NSA collect mass amounts of information on Americans? And Clapper looked right at him and lied to his face and said, no, sir, not wittingly. And I still not sure what that means, but you know, nerdy Edward Snowden was sitting there contemplating leaking documents and watched that. And that was kind of the final straw that made him decide that he had to come forward with this information that James Clapper, who was Obama's top national security official was just overtly lying. So with apologies to Rob Reiner, they're both kind of scumbags, like lying, deceitful scumbags in the way that both of those agencies are. And it's amazing that they're now two of the leading heroes. In fact, John Brennan was just signed to a contract by MSNBC to be yeah. one of their on-air analysts. <laughs> I mean, I guess like, uh, you know, uh, beating up on Meathead is easy, but like, remember remember a while back, uh, Rob Reiner, like he produced a series of ads with Morgan Freeman, where Morgan, Fre- it was like Morgan Freeman narration warning about the, the Russian threat to our democracy. Do you remember that, Glenn? Oh, yeah, yeah. Morgan Freeman said that we're at war with Russia in that video. It's like, uh, what if I told you that there was a story more horrifying than any Hollywood tale <laughs> about a foreign regime stealing our election? There's a story of Hillary Clinton who crawled through a river of shit and came out losing the presidential election. First time I saw George Papadopoulos look like a <laughs> stiff breeze would blow him over. Damn, how do you do those voices? <laughs> it's a very good fucking Morgan Freeman you can shut up yeah you know just on that like it's so interesting because you know Hollywood has this reputation of being super liberal and um, Oliver Stone actually gave this interview once that was really interesting about you know the effect that Hollywood has had on America's political consciousness and obviously you know you go back to like the studio films of like the, the studio era with like John Wayne and all of that obviously all of those guys like Ronald Reagan, of course, were super, you know, nationalistic and all that crap they were producing was designed to glorify war. But even, you know, into like the 80s and 90s and then like with all those Tom Clancy films and Rambo. Um, and it is true. Hollywood has always been like this, um, despite their, you know, liberal Hollywood reputation. They've always been in some senses like leading the way in terms of beating the drums of war and fanning all those nationalistic flames. I mean, I think it speaks to this uh, current broader pathology in our politics or a kind of a, a failure of liberalism or rather the Trump era revealing the inherent weaknesses and contradictions in the liberal worldview that has come to a head now, uh, especially uh, with regards to the whole Russia issue. And I know you're, you're probably sick of talking about this, but I mean, I think it's important to bring up, okay, like, Glenn, uh, we're having you on because uh, you were recently profiled in uh, New York Magazine, uh, 
and uh, we were mentioned in that piece as well. So, so we, it was a profile of both of us. <laughs> so always good. Uh, any media is good media. I regard it as a joint profile. Yeah, exactly. A, a profile of Glenn Greenwald and the Chapo Trap House Media Empire. And and I guess we were used as it like you know you were the the obviously the the subject of this piece and we were included sort of alongside it as examples uh, along with I think Max Blumenthal and the RT Network um, of I guess people on the left who are uh, skeptical or outright contemptuous who love of this, Putin the 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 Russia want to get narrative. fucked in the ass by Putin yeah <laughs> ooh spicy but um. I mean, I guess like I want to get I want to drill into like what what this actually all means, because like we have said before, I've said before on the show, my take on Russia's interference of the election is that I'm bored by it. Like, I don't really care all that much. Like, I think there's they probably did something, I'm sure, but I'm very skeptical that it had any greater effect on what would otherwise be a winnable election for Hillary Clinton. Uh, for instance, in the piece, I think John Cook is quoted as saying, I love Glenn, but he's dead wrong on this. So I want to ask you, like, I mean, to give uh, your critics or to give the devils their due, what do you think when people who very confidently state that, like, the Russia case is absolutely real, it's serious, and that your people who dismiss it do so at their own peril, what is the best case, do you think, one could make that th- this is important and shouldn't be uh, so easily uh, dismissed. You know, it's interesting because uh, I don't want to refer to the tragically lost discussion that we had, but I nonetheless will because after we hung up, I, I remember that Matt asked a question, which is a really simple and important question. But I, I mean, I realized this after I hung up that it, I don't think I've ever been asked this or even been like heard a discussion about Russia yeah, and Trump and the genius. Democrats and all that where it got asked, which was, you know, he said, like, what is the theory? Like, what is the argument? What's the, the, when like you talk about collusion, like, what does that even mean any longer? Like, what are people saying? So I think if you broke it down, you know, you could say, so there's people who believe that just Russia interfered by trying to sow dissent or spread, you know, anti-Clinton messages with things like advertisements on Facebook and bots on Twitter and the like. And even if you want to believe all that's true, I think like the claim is that they spent something like $500,000 or or close to a million dollars <laughs> in the context of a campaign where Hillary Clinton literally spent a billion dollars. So whatever net effect that was um, is minuscule. I guess, you know, you can say you'd prefer that Russia not um, be trying to persuade American citizens to for whom to vote, but in the context of how countries, including the U.S. and Russia, historically interfere in one another's elections and politics and everybody else's, it's a tiny, tiny, infinitesimal example of, of the way that usually takes place. If that seems extremely insignificant to me, even if you're willing to grant it. So the, the bigger question then becomes... Um, did the Trump campaign actively work in a criminal way or an unethical way with the Russians to do what people regard as the most serious uh, breach, which was hacking into John Podesta and the DNC's emails? And early on in the campaign, the reason why this was talked about so gravely as this kind of criminal case and calls for a special prosecutor was because the theory was that the Trump campaign actively colluded with the Russians in order to do the hacking, that they were co-conspirators in this hacking crime. 
And now, you know, a year and some change later, nobody says that anymore. Nobody believes that, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or Paul Manafort or whomever actually spoke to the Russians and said, hey, let's hack into the DNC or John Podesta's email. The claim now is that they were passive receivers of the information that the Russians were able to obtain by doing the hacking, that after the Russians hacked, various Russians said to Donald Trump Jr., hey, we have dirt on Hillary Clinton that we would like to give you. Are you interested? And Donald Trump Jr. said, you know, fuck yeah, I'm interested. I'll meet you in whatever you have on Hillary Clinton. Let me have that. And the reason why I find that so, and I agree, I guess the, the good word is boring or unimpressive or inconsequential is because... I do think that every presidential campaign, given the chance to get dirt that could damage their opponent, would do it. And the proof of that is that the Clinton campaign and the DNC were trolling all over Ukraine, working with Ukrainian officials to get dirt on Trump because the Ukrainians wanted Hillary to win and they thought she would win and they thought they'd be well positioned by giving them dirt on Trump. They sent steel to Moscow to talk to Russians to get dirt on Trump. Of course, people are going to get dirt from wherever they can get it on their adversary. So just for me, like when you look at the US and Russia, the fact that they have huge stockpiles of nuclear weapons, they have very, you know, archaic Cold War trigger systems where you could literally annihilate the species just through misperception or miscommunication. To, to to ratchet up tensions between these two countries that already hate each other, that are, you know, buzzing around in various parts of the world over something like phishing emails um, <laughs> or at most, you know, Twitter bots and Facebook ads seems <laughs> insane to me. And really motivated by a desire to find an explanation for why Hillary Clinton lost yeah. and shipped the blame away from Democratic operatives at a really high cost, which is playing a very serious geopolitical game that can have very bad consequences. I think it also gives meaning to their lives, you know, to say, I am a, a warrior. I'm, I I read people like Eric Garland and, and 20 Committee who just post raving spy fan fiction nonsense and say, yes, I'm plugged into this. I'm fighting. I'm a patriot and warrior defeating the uh, defeating the Russian bots and the treasonous Republican enablers. And now both of them have premium Twitter feeds that you can access for the low price of $10 a month. Eric Garland announced that, like Schindler, he is now going to have a $10 a month premium Twitter feed. Yeah, no, no joke, guys. Let's subscribe. Sh- yeah, yeah, let's do it. We can write it. it off. Let's do it. Schindler, I need to see those. Schindler has like, what, got thousands of subscribers for his premium geopolitics and anal- analyst tweets. Yo, nobody can ever, ever shit on our Patreon ever again after this bullshit. This is the absolute nadir of that. Uh, Subscribe to Johnny Sun Premium. <laughs> Glenn, uh, like to, to, to this point about uh, Russia and what isn't isn't there. I mean, again, I'm sorry to, to reference the uh, the lost episode, but I think a, a point that bears repeating is in 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 no way in saying any of this does it mean that I or I or speaking for myself don't think that Donald Trump and the people around him are crooks. I think they are inveterate criminals. From top to bottom, I think it's just their very nature because they he, Trump comes out of the world of New York City real estate development, which is top to bottom crime as far as I'm concerned. However, the problem is, even if you take the view that this all is real and is a threat to our democracy, is it doesn't solve the underlying problem 
of a Republican administration or even beyond that, all of the manifold problems with our government in general. If you were to able to impeach Trump tomorrow, I don't see what good it would do the people who are demanding it or like are are so horrified by the idea that he could become president. The same evil people will still be in charge. So this is why I, I just feel it's just like um it's just not filling to me. It's just I, I can't really take a bite out of it without spitting it out again. Yeah, I think two things about that that are important. So one is I think the point Virgil made is actually crucial, which is that it is true that, you know, just as tribalistic beings, we do need to have tribal unity in the most important or one of the most effective ways that that's accomplished by having a common enemy. And Al-Qaeda no longer works. People are bored with that. Um, you know, like ISIS was was fun for a while, but they've kind of disappeared. Um, people aren't really scared of them any longer. People have come to live with the fact that there's going to be some, you know, mass killings of a couple dozen people every now and then. Um, people aren't willing to to just go to like civilizational war over that. And I think the resurrection of Russia and Putin as this kind of, you know, existential threat, this this prime serious rival that threatens American democracy, talking about Moscow exactly the way we talked about them for six decades during the Cold War, has become kind of a civic religion. Um, and I think Virgil's exactly right. It gives people purpose. I remember, you know, if you like watch these British debates, whenever they talk about like wanting to bomb people, um, you know, like in 2014, they have this big debate about whether they were going to go bomb um, ISIS in Syria, mm-hmm. and they had this like really kind of like just squeamish, like nerdy, centrist Blairite Hillary Benn who get, stood up and gave this like really trite, cliched speech about how the British historically have fought evil and fascism and they need to go back and do that in Syria. And all those like British colonists swooned over it because it like revitalized their sense of national purpose. Um, and you know, it lasted like a week and nobody remembers that. And I think they dropped like six, you know, bombs harmlessly, but they felt like they had stood up to an important evil. I think that's a big, big part of what's going on. Um, and then, you know, I also agree with what you said, Will. Like, like you know, it's interesting. I remember growing up, my mother always tried to teach me, um, you know, don't judge people too harshly. Everyone's complicated. People who you think have bad traits also have good ones. And I like genuinely believe that Donald Trump is the sole exception to that. Like, I, <laughs> he's a, a human being who somehow was born without a single redeeming feature. He like nothing I would put past him. And also like Putin is an authoritarian. I'm sure like he does hate Hillary Clinton for lots of reasons, valid and invalid. And I would never put it past him that he would want to fuck with American democracy as well. The question then becomes like, what is the the implication? What is the consequence of it? And for me, if you really believe that Donald Trump in this movement of his is this serious fascist and authoritarian threat, which I happen to believe. Um, I mean, I may disagree about how unique it is, um, like, but certainly parts of it are unique. Um, but if you really believe that premise, then it should mean that the only thing you're thinking about is how to beat Trump and his movement. And I just think that waking up every day and screeching about Putin and the Kremlin and like Russian lawyers is going to make the Democrats far less likely to be able to beat Trump. Um, and this new manifestation of the Republican Party, because I just don't believe that most Americans who aren't sitting in front of MSNBC every day or like reading Vox and Lawfare give the slightest shit about Putin. Like, I don't think that that's what they're worried about. And if that's what the Democrats, you know, they hear the Democrats talking about, 
I just think people are going to turn off to the Democrats again and say, you know, Trump is gross. He has a disgusting personality. I've kind of gotten used to it. At least he's talking about making my paycheck higher, like things that they actually care about. Um, And I think it's going to be a repeat of 2016. Well, the thing is, is that they honestly, I think, have given up even trying to figure out how to beat Trump or beat people like Trump. I think that they kind of know instinctively uh, in some deep part of themselves that they have nothing to respond to this new type of politics. On the other hand, Daddy Mueller busting into the White House with a fucking SWAT team to arrest everybody, that is something that they can more easily conceive of as a way to fix him than the very difficult task of figuring out how to create a message and platform to beat him at the polls. It's not that difficult, to be fair, but maybe it is for them. They are terrified. Well, yeah, it's... Okay, it's yeah. If you if you were in charge, maybe of the DNC, but given I the people who actually job. are in charge of the DNC, it would be very difficult because the commitments that they have made to their donors yes. mean that the easy thing that we can see as the way to beat them is not possible. They can't do that. By the way, there is a great piece in the uh, Baffler today by Chris Lehman about um, how uh, what's his name, uh, Jonathan R- Roach, I think Brookings. What's his name, mm-hmm. Jonathan Rauch? I don't know. Jonathan Ranch dressing. Jonathan Ranch dressing. Uh, it's just all about how uh, Brookings uh, is now counseling uh, the Democrats that, like, look, it's great that we have all this populist energy, but it's concerning because a lot of these new candidates are inexperienced and asking for too much ideological purity. And they, like, they were saying, like, it's very dangerous that, like, the small commissions. Uh, to roll back the power of superdelegates that the DNC Unity Commission agreed to, that we talked to Nomike amount uh, about a couple of weeks ago, uh, they're very concerned about this, and they see like the a lot of the the new candidates that like we talked to Ryan Groom about as a problem, and they're creating this new ideological or sort of like think tank. Uh, I don't know, pl- you know, sort of like they're counseling the Democrats about how best to sort of nudge these candidates in the right direction. Ugh. And by the right direction, well, they mean a platform that won't scare the donors of the Democratic here's the, Party. Here's the thing. I actually come to the opposite conclusion because I worry that that these new grassroots, lefty, progressive Bernie Sanders bold candidates don't have a firm enough ideological commitment because you need firm ideological commitments and organization to get something done. Look at the Freedom Caucus and how successful they have been over the past several years uh, extracting concessions, even from Barack Obama, just by saying no, just by withholding their votes and threatening to bring the House down. And that's something that I think effectively, if we're going to go towards a new productive kind of politics, we will need a mirror image of from the left in the next Congress and not just two more years of Mueller investigations and just using the power of subpoena. I mean, yeah, sure, do that, but... Uh, you also need a some kind of positive platform and some kind of positive achievements. But but they're not but they're not gonna do they're not gonna do that. And I like I mean I I used to be a little bit skeptical when people said this, and now I've come to believe that it's you know a hundred percent true. Maybe I was just being naive and like being resistant, but I absolutely do one hundred percent now believe that the Democratic Party, meaning you know kind of the people who fund it and the people who run it. Um, would prefer to be a centrist corporatist party in the minority than to be a kind of more left-wing, um, more socialist party and win. Because, I, you know, it's funny. I remember like in March of 2016, I went to write this trolling article that I was just doing on purpose just to like anger Clinton supporters. Oh, that was my original good, intention. Sir. Where I was just going to take some polling data and show that Clinton was outperforming 
Sanders was outperforming Clinton um, against every Republican, including Trump, and then just sort of say, like, with Trump looming and the possibility of this fascist candidate, like, why would you take the gamble mm-hmm. and um, nominate this unelectable candidate named Hillary Clinton when you have this much safer bet named Bernie Sanders? Like, just kind of reverse it and laugh in their face. Yeah. And then, like, what I did was, as I compiled the polling data, I actually started realizing that wasn't a joke like th- that that yeah. was actually true that like she was probably the only democrat who could get nominated who would lose to trump and and he i looking at the polling data like had almost no chance so they know that they know like the excitement and the the energy that sanders generated that was like what obama did in 2008 they see what corbyn's able to do um in the uk but they're never going to do that because ideologically that's not who they are and it's not what they want to be and I think that like there's all these, you know, permanent power factions in Washington that are very opportunistic. You see the neocons doing it, you see like the national security people doing it, you see Wall Street doing it. They know that the energy or they think the energy is just aligned with like resistance and so they're grabbing onto that brand in the hope that all of that energy will usher them back into power. And even though that energy doesn't want their policies, those are the people who end up in power and then they those policies can be implemented. The uh it's Jonathan Rausch uh of Brookings and they they did a new study Quoting from the study, it says, when we surveyed political consultants, they told us by wide margins that candidates in primary races are becoming more ideological and more inexperienced. Other research finds signs of a downward spiral. Extreme candidates heighten polarization in politics and paralysis in Congress, discouraging moderates and pragmatists who reflect the preferences of most Americans from entering politics. Progressive activists we spoke with said they do not see, they seek not just to influence policy, but also to broaden the very concept of political viability. Though the goal is laudable, inexperience can compound the chaos that is already giving government a bad name. They, they, They are using ideological as a slur this is this is a negative thing yeah, they're not problem to be solvers. ideological they're not problem solvers problem solvers don't care about ideology they care about getting things done for america Ugh. but what they're actually talking about by an experience is they're not going to hire us for their campaigns because <laughs> the real infrastructure for for these political parties specifically the democrats is these barnacle like fucking consultants who suck millions of dollars for to do nothing and lose repeatedly that, that, those are like the permanent that's the deep state of the democratic party yeah, yeah. yeah and they depend on getting hired by each new generation of uh of candidates and if you've got these ideological candidates coming in saying yeah i don't really need you to tell me how to appeal to soccer moms i'm just gonna try to pitch you know my my broad populist agenda then fuck, they're out of a job. Gentlemen, we got to save our phony baloney jobs Oh, you naive ideologue. You think you can appeal to soccer moms without a bachelor's degree in communications from Ithaca College? (laughs) Good luck. To refocus slightly to like this idea about um, investigating Trump or or holding out for Mueller as this this kind of silver bullet that's going to finally put this monster away. I mean, I think the thing is like, fine, Investigate him for his obstruction of justice, of which I'm sure him and many around yeah. him are guilty. Yeah, I mean, Fine. And it's like, that's the thing. I'm not saying don't impeach Trump. Do it. If you, if you think you can do it, do it. If they impeach Trump, great. I'm sure it'll hurt the Republicans. It'll in the at least run. Eat a, run out the clock. Yeah, but like, but at the same time, I like, I don't think it's going to be this panacea that these people believe it is. And what they're giving away in service for this, which is, I'm sorry, this ludicrous veneration of 
the FBI and the CIA, and not only that, their paranoia about Russia is allowing them to um, undercut and sell out a lot of these core progressive commitments. Yes. And this idea, like in this this idea that that Russian bots are oh, like they're 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 making Black Lives Matter activists get agitated, or like they're making Chelsea Manning run against Ben Cardin in Maryland, or like they're attacking strong Democratic voices who support the national security state, and it's just like. Just come out and say that you like you love the CIA and the FBI and the war on terror is great. You we just love don't, our CIA. We just don't want Donald Trump in charge of it. Like that's really what they're saying. Yeah, but like you know, it's interesting because like here in Brazil, um, as I'm sure you guys probably know, there's like this huge, massive corruption scandal where just pretty much every single oligarch and every single important political figure has been exposed as just oozingly corrupt. You know, just like luggage like suitcases full of cash kind of corruption and putting them in Swiss bank accounts in exchange for contracts and votes all of that and a lot of them have been carted off to prison and and others of them haven't and you know for a long time in Brazil and even now like the politicians who everybody knew was, was were stealing were still winning and you would talk to the people and you would say like why are you voting for these people that you know are are getting bribes and stealing and the people would say like they're all fucking corrupt so i'm going to vote for the ones that like bring some of that money back to me like that make my life a little bit better and if they're stealing i i can live with that and i'm not saying it's quite the same as in the us but i do think that you know it does remind me a lot of like how republicans knew they couldn't beat bill clinton and so we're hoping ken starr would destroy him and take him down and i'm not comparing that scandal to this one in terms of magnitude, but I think the mentality is the same. If you look at Reagan's Iran-Contra scandal, which was like probably on par with what they're claiming Trump did, if not worse, um, I don't really think that damaged him or damaged the Republican Party. I just don't think that – I think that people want to hear from parties, what are you going to do to make my life better? And it just simply is true that if you listen to Democrats, you don't hear any answers about that and haven't for quite a long time. And um, I don't know why – I don't know what they think their their solution is going to be to that. It's a man named Joe Kennedy third, sir. <laughs> that it, That is the one thing they haven't tried yet is taking a super rich person with Wall Street funding and corporate ties from a – famous political family and see how they do. Ich bin ein Resister. You know, something that kind of worries me is take what take what's happened in the in the past year, the first year of the Trump administration. And imagine if like the Russian had there was no Russian interference. There's nothing about Russia whatsoever. But they do the exact same things with executive orders. They do the exact same legislation. Would these resistance people who are in high dudgeon about uh treason from the Republican Party and enabling would they feel the same way about Republicans? Would they be so hateful towards them? And I think the answer is no, which is kind of a frightening prospect. I don't know. I think they would be hateful to Trump because he's so grotesque and represents like everything that is so much the opposite of what they believe to be true and good. Um, would they be the same for just Republican, the Republican Party in general? I mean, I don't see any evidence that they're doing that now, so I don't understand. Well, that's, yeah, that is the thing, because don't, don't, their don't objection to Republican... Did get impeached or resigned or just, like, dropped dead or whatever, and then Mike Pence became the president, there would be this, like, huge collective sigh of relief that at least we have returned to normalcy. 
that he arguably would be more efficient and effective at implementing evil because he doesn't repulse people in the way that Trump does. And then even worse, all of this kind of buildup over the last 16 to 18 months of this nationalistic rhetoric, this worship of the CIA and the NSA um, and the FBI, all of that just like uber nationalism, which the right has excelled for decades at exploiting, um, would then just become weapons in his hands or yes. whoever, you know, succeeds Trump on the same platform, but is a more effective and less repulsive person. I mean, I just, that's what I think the danger of the resistance is, is what you guys were just referring to is it's not just ineffective, but I think really you can remove Trump, but the forces that elected Trump aren't going to go anywhere. And, and I think you can make yourself much less capable of being able to resist it by, in, you know, strengthening these institutions who are going to support that once Trump is gone and Bill Crystal feels good again because now the wars are being advocated by someone who he, who seems respect, respectable respectable to him. Yeah, you bring up uh, Bill Crystal. We opened the show talking about uh, John Podhoritz, who's another very vocal anti-Trump conservative, and he's very proud of all the abuse he gets from like the alt right or whatever, or or Trump supporters who you know he has contempt for. But at the same time, like on the liberal or left side of things, I think there's a lot of these people who credit themselves as being very savvy political operators and minds that are now basically calling for a truce with people like Podhoritz and Crystal because they're like, well, hey, we're both working against the same, you know, common enemy. This is like, you know... This is like when uh, the like at the end of the movie. Oh, who is it? Was it Favreau or one of the Pod Save America people said this is like? Oh God! He was like, this is like the end of the movie where like the good guys and bad guys team up to fight the alien invasion or something like that, and like that's you know a, a glib way of putting it in his own words or whatever. But I think like this speaks to the, like something that's far worse and more pernicious is that these people who regard themselves as being very savvy and being like, hey, sometimes you you know in politics you have to make friends with people you don't like to unite for a common goal. I don't think they're realizing the harm they're doing to not just this country, but the world at large by reinviting someone like Bill Crystal into polite society. Not that he ever really left to begin yeah. with, but it, it is unbelievably um, irresponsible and craven to make any kind of cause with these type of people whatsoever these are not your friends they're not the friends yes. of anything you believe in and if like i said if mike pence are in power they would be more than happy with that Here, here's the thing and this kind of ties it all together they don't hate republicans for the correct reason to hate them because they're republicans because of what they believe and what they do which is unimaginably evil and sending our country uh god to well what's the worst possible place you could be florida so <laughs> they're making the entire country florida basically and and that's because fundamentally the resistance people who are now talking about russia don't have an ideology and it's really really easy for the consultants of the tom perez types to co-op that energy because they don't owe anything to russia their donors don't give a shit about russia and their checks are paid when people donate money because they're mad about russia going back to the 2016 election like glenn you're absolutely right that if you're running a campaign and you want to win this campaign because you believe something, you have a firm ideological goal and commitment that requires you to win, and your opponent believes something unimaginably evil, the opposite of that, you will do whatever it takes within legal boundaries to win that election. Uh, a good example, and I brought this up during that fake recording, that practice one we did, is in 2000, 
Al Gore's uh, one of Al Gore's debate prep team, the the guy who was doing the George W. Bush stand in, received a package containing George W. Bush's debate prep materials. And what that guy did was he contacted the FBI, told him what happened, and he recused himself from Al Gore's debate team. In 1980, the exact same thing happened, but it was Ronald Reagan's people who got uh, Jimmy Carter's debate prep. And Ronald Reagan used it. He used it. And then he won that election. And for years, Jimmy Carter blamed that for his 1980 election loss. Uh, One side plays to win because one side does have firm ideological commitments and the other side doesn't. And that's a fact. You know, it's interesting the the whole question about, you know, ideology. um, And and this is something we talked about from the, the last, you know, show as well was um you know i watched for like i started my career writing about politics writing about civil liberties issues in guantanamo and torture and drones and militarism and secrecy um and i watched you know from january 19th 2008 to january 20th 2008 or 2009 rather when obama was inaugurated um huge numbers of people just instantly changed their views because you know changing their views was necessary for them to go from criticizing a Republican to defending a Democrat. And just before we started the show, um, I saw a tweet from Ana Navarro who's become – you know, she was like one of the worst people in politics forever. I mean she was like the hardest core advocate. She was like with Marco Rubio and you know just still wanting to fight the Cold War in in Latin America. And she did this tweet like honoring Ronald Reagan for his birthday. It was like Ronald Reagan, you know, it was all designed to like contrast with the evil Trump, all the ways that Reagan was good. Like he opened the doors to immigrants and he used really beautiful unifying rhetoric and he like stood up to communism and of course, like predictably, it got retweeted, you know, 10,000 times in like an hour. And I, I bet all the money that I have that the vast majority of people retweeting it were Democrats yep. and liberals because it was implicitly an anti-Trump message. And it's like if you can celebrate Ronald Reagan as, OK, someone I kind of disagreed with but who is still a fundamentally good person given all the like core evil that he did both domestically and in foreign policy – what is it do you believe? And I ultimately do believe that the thing they hate most about Trump is that he beat Hillary Clinton in a way that they think is unfair. Like that's the thing they hate most about Trump. Because, and there's no fairness. Wasn't there um, – shoot, I, I barely remember this. Like a year ago, there was a young labor MP, a Corbinite who was elected who said, no, I don't hang out with conservatives. They're the fucking Laurie enemy. Pittock. Yes. That's the, those are the, those are the sort of people that I want to see in office that I want to see represent me because they're correct. They know that this is a street fight to the death. You don't hang out and get a beer with Bill Crystal or Joe Walsh after, uh, after a long day of debating. That was another one. It was uh, Joe Walsh, the um, child support ex-congressman. Yeah, one yeah. of the most singularly vile people to be elected in the during the Tea Party Revolution. And he said he was like tweeting something about the memo, and he said, "Well, I just lost." Oh, a he, thousand- he's going to get an MSNBC contract soon. Right? <laughs> well, absolutely, absolutely. And he tweeted something like, "Well, I just lost a thousand uh, followers because I said that releasing the memo was unpatriotic or something." And then underneath it were these hashtag resistance people saying 999, 998, <laughs> yeah. 997, because yep. they were making up Joe's lost yeah. followers. Hey, enjoy all those knockout game tweets, guys. <laughs> this is going to be fun for you. Well, you, you, you brought up the memo, and I, I want to touch on this uh, briefly now. I've In previous shows, I've brought it up before asking what the hell it is. I've since learned what it is and then forgotten entirely. 
But the general point here is that Noons released this memo, which is probably, I mean, bullshit. I mean, Noons is a fraud and it's designed to exonerate Trump or give his supporters ammunition against the Mueller investigation to make it look partisan or whatever. But then the Democrats were saying, oh, the releasing this is a grave insult to the FBI. It endangers our national security. Glenn, just one more time. What is actually in this memo and when it was released? Like, w- like what the hell is, does it say? What's there? Okay, so there's like a kernel of truth to the memo. Um, there's zero sincerity on the part of Devin Nunez, but there is a kernel of truth to the memo. So the memo, basically the main argument of the memo is that the FBI and the DOJ went to the FISA court which is a secret court that meets only with the Department of Justice. So no one else is there. So the only information the FISA court judge knows when deciding whether to issue a warrant that enables the FBI or the NSA to listen to every word an American citizen says on the phone and read every word of their email and their chat. So it's a pretty serious warrant. The only information the FISA court judge has when making the decision is the information that the Justice Department gives them. And I can tell you from having been a lawyer that if you get to go to court and are the only one presenting facts um, and there's nobody else there, you can literally convince a judge or a jury of anything. You just manipulate the context. You omit facts that are unfavorable to you. You present them in the light that's most favorable to you and there's no one there objecting or saying that that's wrong. So it's an extremely one-sided and unfair process, which is why the FISA court approves something like 99.8% of all of the warrants in the history of the FISA court because they just rubber stamp everything because there's only one side there convincing them and they are generally pro-national security judges. So what happened here is pretty serious, right? Like inherently serious, which is that the FBI and the DOJ under a Democratic president got a warrant to spy on the communications of someone who at least at some point was an unpaid Trump campaign advisor. Like, that's just an inherently serious thing. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's invalid. There could be good reasons for it. But, you know, that's something that you're interested in if you learn that that happened. And the argument of the news memo is that in order to accomplish that, the FBI went to the FISA court and they used the Steele dossier, which ultimately is unvetted and unverified in large part, and was something that was paid for at first by Republican opponents of Trump. And then ultimately the Clinton campaign and the the, the Democrats. Um, so it's basically like just a political document. It's an opposition research memo. Um, it's not an FBI investigation. It's not something the FBI went on their own and got. And the argument in the Nunes memo is they presented this information in the Steele dossier to the FISA court judge without telling the FISA court judge that um, this was paid for by the Democrats, that it was a political document. And therefore, they deceived the FISA court judge to get this warrant. The Democrats say that's not true, that if you read the affidavits, it makes clear that it's an opposition uh, document. We have no idea what's true because we haven't seen the other underlying documents. I would not be – I'd be shocked if Devin Nunes wasn't mostly lying. There's probably like a footnote that the DOJ put in saying, hey, by the way, this is an opposition document, something that probably didn't alert the FISA judge to what it really is, but that you could point to and say, look, we did disclose it. But the kernel of truth is that this is a fucked up process. That's, I mean, that was like a major part of the Snowden reporting is that there is no real safeguards on how the DOJ and the FBI can spy on people because usually the FBI and the DOJ go in and they say stuff that's not true and no one ever finds out about it. And the problem, of course, here, what's really happening here is that usually they're going in and they're spying on Muslims. 
So we did a story a couple of years ago using Snowden documents that they targeted five Muslim Americans, clearly political. Like one was a longtime professor and critic, uh, but also defender of the Iranian government. Another one was a Muslim who worked in Homeland Security, like just that, that the executive director of CARE, like the largest Muslim mm-hmm. civil liberties group. They were clearly spying on these people for political reasons, not for national security reasons, and they got FISA warrants for them because the process is so fucked up. But of course, Devin Nunez and no one else in the Republican Party cared at all about that because the victims were Muslims. They care in this case because it's like a rich white guy who's a Republican who seems to be like them. And so suddenly, you know, people like Tucker Carlson and all of Fox News and the Republican Party are all suddenly rediscovering their deeply held beliefs in the the sanctity of privacy because now they feel like it's people like them who are being threatened. So we'll never know what's true because we're never going to see these five affidavits. It would be great if this actually did prompt a real debate about whether we need um, serious reforms and how the government can spy on us. But the problem is is that these very same Republicans – just got together with Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and Dianne Feinstein and people like that um, to pass a bill that increased Trump's ability to spy on Americans while blocking all amendments that would have given safeguards and reforms. So none of these people give the slightest shit about surveillance abuses or anything else. They just see it you know, as an opportunistic way oh, to discredit the Mueller investigation by claiming that the FBI under Obama lied and cheated in order to spy on the Trump campaign. Glenn, that's really, that's the reality of what's going Glenn, on. Glenn, you don't understand that NSA vote, what it was for. They wanted to increase the spying power so they could be used against Donald Trump and get the evidence they need to convict him. I did see that argument get made. Glenn, as far as someone like uh, Carter Page goes, or that the fact that the FBI was wiretapping someone connected to a political campaign in the midst of an election season, is that completely unprecedented? Or I mean, like whether whether it's right or not, or whether this process is just or or, or is I don't know has the correct safeguards for civil liberties. Obviously, uh, it doesn't. But like, is that completely outside the purview of something the FBI would look into or, or is this unprecedented? Well, I mean, I can't think of any other example, right? So imagine just in 2008, if we had learned that the you know Justice Department led by John Ashcroft or Alberto Gonzalez under Bush and Cheney had gone to the FISA court um, under weird conditions and got a warrant to spy on some important person inside the Obama campaign when they were running against John McCain any Democrat would be rightly interested in making certain that that was that every I was dotted and T was crossed and that that was completely valid. Um, You know, the question of whether or not Carter Page has like there's a reason to believe he's really a Russian agent. I just, you know, the evidence that they show is that Carter Page did work for the Russians. He, you know, bragged about giving them advice. He got paid for it. If that makes somebody an agent of a foreign power in the way that like the FISA statute contemplates, where you're really like it's really supposed to be about like who's spying, then every single person in the scumbag lobbyist class should be subject to FISA warrants and be eavesdropped on all the time. I mean, all those guys like Lanny Davis um, and Tony Podesta, like every single one of those, you know, bipartisan lobbyist pigs. Um, is on the payroll of various foreign governments and horrible regimes. Um, so I don't know whether there's a valid reason to think that Carter Page really was some kind of spy on behalf of the Russian government. It sounds more to me like 
he was just doing business with the Russians. But either way, I mean, he's just a low-level unpaid advisor. Like, even if Carter Page is a Russian spy, what is, where does that get us? That's just not very interesting to me. He was the opposite of integral to the Trump campaign. Do you think this amounts to the like FBI as an institution showing some kind of preference for Hillary Clinton to win the election? Well, there were clearly factions in the FBI that were completely favorable to Trump, right? We know that for sure. Like all those, you know, just all those people who were leaking to Rudy Giuliani, who would then go on Fox and say, I've learned that some serious thing is coming against Clinton. They were pressuring Comey to indict her. They were the ones who coerced him into reopening the investigation 10 days before the election. Like most people... In the United States who work with guns, you know, like the armed the armed forces of the U.S. domestically were behind Trump. And I think that includes large parts of the FBI. We know from those texts and other things that there were people in the FBI who thought Trump was some kind of like unstable freak, which, you know, was true. Um, and I'm sure there were lots of people in the FBI who thought Hillary Clinton would be better. I know for sure most of the people in the CIA wanted Clinton to win. Because she was promising to escalate the proxy war in Syria um, and to arm, you know, the anti-Russian factions within uh, the Ukrainian forces, they for sure wanted Hillary Clinton to win. And you know, Bush's CIA director uh, Michael Hayden and Obama's CIA director, acting CIA director Michael Morrell, openly campaigned for Clinton with op-eds saying that Trump was a, a you know a, an asset of of, of Putin. Um, so you know, I don't, I, I would not, I don't think it's that at the FBI. Um, was necessarily hoping Clinton would win. I think they probably saw a lot of really weird shit that they weren't used to seeing with Donald Trump for the reason you said earlier, Will, which is that like he, you know, is a, he is a, a criminal and a sleazebag in all the worst ways and, you know, has dealt with, you know, organized crime and money laundering and like just dirty international finance. And so if you're an FBI agent and, you know, these people are getting your power, I think it's just normal. Um, that you would be interested in in looking into what really is going on. That seems like the kind of thing the FBI would normally do. I mean, one of the oddest aspects of all of this is the 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 way in which James Comey has gone from being villain to hero of these people. Because back to this idea of you know the 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 leaked emails or the bots affecting the election, which I think you can make an argument like they did. However, nothing, in my opinion, no interjection into the election affected the outcome more than Comey's statement about Hillary Clinton about a week or so before the election. And then after and then he was like enemy number one and then Trump fires him. And now he's like a hero to all of these same people, even though he, he did, in fact, break sort of FBI tradition and protocol, making that public statement that close to the election, which if you paid attention to it basically said Hillary Clinton if she were working for me would have been fired for for the for not you know uh vetting or not handling this this classified information uh, correctly right i mean he actually did two things that infuriated the democrats um both of which were valid criticism so the first one was he decided not to indict her and then instead of just doing what the fbi does in pretty much every single case when they decide you know, that they're going to close the case without an indictment. He instead went before the cameras and said all kinds of critical stuff about yeah. what she did wrong. You know, she was reckless. She shouldn't have done this. Um, she jeopardized national security. Like, you can't have the FBI making claims about somebody like that 
outside of the criminal justice process because they have no way to defend themselves, right? There's no evidence to obtain. There's no defense possible. Um, the FBI either indicts you or they shut up. And he chose this middle ground for political reasons. Um, he was in a hard spot. Like if he had just said, we're not going to indict her, people would have assumed the FBI was being partisan. But still, like they have a good case that that was a really bad thing that he did, was go in front of the cameras using the the authority of the FBI and basically accuse her of being reckless with, with handling classified information. Then the second thing that he did is what you just said, which is reopening that investigation. And you're absolutely right. Like after Clinton lost, she gave this interview and they were interviewing, you know, Robbie Mook and, and Podesta and all of those guys. They weren't talking about WikiLeaks or Putin or the New York Times. They were talking about one thing and one thing only, and that was Comey. That's who they blamed for, for their loss. And then Nate Silver went around for three months, um, you know, with all of his charts and graphs and whatever. <laughs> pinning the blame on Comey as well, saying that like you could palpably see the shift in polling um, when Comey announced the reopening of that investigation. And so it is amazing that he was not just one of the villains, but the single, like the leading villain. And I remember people, you know, all of those Democrats are like, you know, you're going to, this is going to sit on your conscience until you go to your grave. And this is going to be the first paragraph of your obituary that because of you, Trump became president and like blew up the world and, you know, open concentration camps. That's all on you, Jim Comey. And now, like every time, you know, he just utters something from like a West Wing script, they cannot heap enough praise on it. And, he, you know, he has this book coming out filled with, I'm sure, cliched payons to, like, the ethics and upstanding nobility of the people of the FBI. And I guarantee you it's going to go to number one in the New York Times bestseller list and sit there for, like, two months because all of those resist- resistance people are going to buy it. I'm I'm imagining the cover right now, and it's him not in a suit. Like, you know, looking maybe a little cash with sort of like an outdoor woodsy kind of jacket, Ooh. hands in pockets, and then it'll, like, the title will be, like, to serve with honor. A lifetime in government, or something like that. Oh. Direct, director of the put FBI, that James Comey, in there too. Like, yeah, he's yeah. going to be like gazing at it somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, like Matt and I were talking about this right before you got on the, the the phone because it was like when Comey made that statement, all of the momentum and media coverage was behind the the pussy tape, and I think in making that statement, Comey gave people who despised Donald Trump and would never vote for him, but also hated Clinton, uh, a reason to stay home, basically, or like mm-hmm. reason enough not to vote for her by saying essentially that she had committed a what would otherwise yeah, be well, a crime. Well, that's the thing. I mean, these are all counterfactuals, but I mean, I, I see that argument and it's potentially true, though I'd have to say that a campaign strategy that relies on those people that hate you to begrudgingly yeah, vote for you is a terrible strategy to begin with. Of course. We have a, a a little bit more time here. I want to actually go in a different direction uh, than all this Russia stuff. I want to take advantage of the fact that you know you've been dealing uh, with issues about like sort of cybersecurity and hacking and surveillance. Like that has been like your mainstay for for years now, going all the way back to the Bush administration. Very stock photo of hands on a keyboard <laughs> with the word hacked or access uh, accepted. And I want to ask you a question that I think speaks to like the larger drift of surveillance and the erosion of privacy in our culture. I have ta- I've asked Matt, or Matt, you asked me about this the other day. You're gonna know, you know what I'm gonna say, Glenn. Do you have an Alexa anywhere in your house? Do you know what that is? It's a lady robot. 
No, what is that? The Amazon Alexa. Are you familiar with this? Oh, oh, no, no, Alexa. No, I do not have an Alexa anywhere in my house. Would you ever have one in your house? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, um, I've started to make all these compromises because I have two kids now, um, and they've like started, they like want things that just offend my conscience. And so I'm constantly trying to navigate between what I should like impose on them and what I have to sacrifice and concede. Um, so that's the only way that I can envision that happening. But, you know, I do, like, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because, um, this whole question of privacy, like, we just never, think about why it matters so much. And I, you know, I just think that, um, any person who ever spends five seconds thinking about what would really happen to their lives if they had no privacy, um, would be completely traumatized, you know, just like if everything about you, everything that you did, um, everything that you said, everything that you thought were just public, um, how that would radically change the choices that you made and how it would radically alter how people perceived you if that happened. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to take steps like that. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't didn't was it the Snowden revelations that that showed that all of these companies like Google and Apple or whatever have all have agreement they all have backdoors basically to the NSA like that's part of their because all of these companies are also have huge government contractor contracts as well and isn't part of that that they that there are these sort of like that all of these devices that that we buy and use every day there's like a massive backdoor that the government can tap or surveillance or even other private intelligence corporations can tap into uh, basically at the flick of a switch. Or is that an exaggeration? I mean, I think backdoor is a little bit too much. Um, I mean, the government didn't really need a backdoor that way because basically anything they wanted, Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft would give them because prior to the Snowden reporting, no one knew that was happening and therefore there were no consequences and there were a huge number of benefits, which were all of the government contracts that those companies received um, and more importantly, just the influence in Washington to prevent regulation, to prevent any kind of control. That was what they really were more interested in. Um, you know, the revolving door that then happened as a result of this kind of intermingling of the public and private sector, the merging of the two, um, which has happened in every industry, but especially in Silicon Valley. So it wasn't, you know, it, like if you're the government and you want to get, you know, Facebook chats, the two ways you can do it are you can tap into underwater cables and suck up all the data and then find a way to catalog it all and search for it. Or you can just go to your friends at Facebook and say, hey, give me this. And for years prior to the Snowden reporting, they were doing the latter. And that was what the prison program was. They were just working together to build infrastructure that let the government get whatever Facebook chats they wanted, whatever Gmail um, messages that they, they, they desired, all of that. Um, and that is one of the main things that the Snowden reporting has actually changed, that these companies became pretty petrified, you know, that they were going to lose an entire generation of internet users to really shrewd, you know, social media companies in Germany or Korea or Brazil who are going to say, don't use Facebook and Google because they're collaborators with the U.S. government and we'll turn over your data to the NSA. Use ours instead because we will safeguard your privacy. It just became a business imperative for them to demonstrate that they were actually going to safeguard people's privacy as opposed to giving it away. Um, and that has created like this real interesting and pretty at times like vitriolic um, tension between the government on the one hand 
in Silicon Valley companies on the other when the government doesn't get what they want now, you know, they'll publicly go and say Facebook and Google have blood on their hands because they're aiding and abetting ISIS because we asked them for, you know, posts to be taken down or for information that we thought about uh, suspected terrorists and they wouldn't give it to us. So one of my main goals and how I was doing the Snowden reporting was to constantly try and exacerbate that hatred to like drive <laughs> a wedge between those governments and, and Silicon Valley. I think that's one of the most important strategies for preventing this kind of, you know, private public sector merger of a surveillance state. Last question. And I am genuinely interested. Do you cover the webcam on your laptop? Do you keep like a little piece of duct tape over that? Like, well, I mean, yes, but you oh, know, okay. it's not, bec- I mean, Told you. yes, but that's just because when I buy a new computer, I take one of those EFF stickers and put it on the webcam and then I just keep it there. Um, like I try hard to find that right balance between being privacy conscious and not being paranoid. I mean, I think like the, the way in which we've all sort of invited this stuff into our lives because it's, you know, we, we like it. It's, it's convenient. convenient and it's it easy. Works. It, you know, it's easy. We like it. There's sort of a narcotic effect to how pleasant it is. But yet it, it creates this huge, you know, blind spot for that we're just giving over huge parts of our personal lives and data to shady third parties. I mean, I think the question is, what would it be like to live without privacy? I think for a lot of people, they weigh that against, well, you know, I'm not really doing anything wrong. So there'd be no reason to look into me in the first place. You know, I think the key point to this is, um, and I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this and how to articulate it. Um, so, you know, I think the problem with losing privacy is that the ways in which it starts to put you into bondage are kind of imperceptible. Um, you know, like 1984, which is a total cliche to talk about in the context of spying, but still is actually, you know, like a really insightful and prescient warning about what would happen. P, when you bring 1984 up, people say, um, well, it doesn't really apply because in that case, they were watching everybody at all times. Um, and that's not the case here. The NSA is not reading all of your emails. They're not listening to all of your calls. Um, but if you actually read 1984, the warning of 1984 was actually what the narrator, Winston Smith, says at one point is that, you know, these monitors that were in everybody's homes, you never knew when they were watching you. In fact, you never knew for sure. You didn't know for sure if they were ever watching you. And so for that reason, you had to assume they were always watching you and therefore conduct yourself accordingly. Like it just breeds conformity and submission and adherence to orthodoxy. And there's that Rosa Luxemburg quote that I always think is the most insightful that says, he who does not move does not notice their chains. Like you can have your privacy deprived, but if you just accept the situation and kind of submit to in a subconscious way, even to the ways in which you're being coerced, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're not actually being restrained because there's nothing that you want to do that you're refraining from doing. And I think that's what happens. And I I think that is what's happening. I think people use the internet in a much more careful way um, than they did 15 years ago when everything was this wild west of anonymity. Um, It's just that that prison that grows in your mind um, when you feel like you're constantly being watched that I do think really does radically alter behavior in ways that are almost entirely negative. Or sort of like even if you you don't care and like, you know, my... uh my joke is like, you know, I, I hope there is an NSA guy spying on me. So he has to just watch me like jack off and like pick my nose or whatever, because like that to me would be a punishing job. But at the same, I mean, maybe this is paranoid, but like the way I often think about it is like, yeah, the vast majority of people aren't doing anything that the intelligence community gives a fuck about. However, all that data is out there. 
And you can't tell that like, maybe this is paranoid, but like at a future date, let's say you want to run for office. Let's say you want to organize politically against the uh, unaccountable power of surveillance and the intelligence community. Well, you can bet they'd be interested then. And like all that shit never goes away. So all of those emails that I sent to my ex-girlfriend. That that is the most important point, right? Is that when people say that, you know, oh, I don't think the government's interested in me. I'm not important enough. What they're implicitly saying is, I know that I've been offered a bargain, which I've accepted, that as long as I remain totally unthreatening, yeah. they'll leave me alone. Like, they're not going to be interested in me. But, you know, if you become Martin Luther King um, and you're agitating in public and, you know, leading a huge movement that's destabilizing society, they're going to be very fucking interested in you. And the minute you start to say... I'm okay with things because I'm sufficiently boring that I don't think they care enough about me to watch. What you're essentially saying is I'm willing to be submissive and pliant and quiet and unthreatening in exchange for you agreeing to leave me alone. And that's that's the exact danger. That doesn't justify allowing the surveillance state. That's the reason why it's so menacing. Okay, I think that's a good place to uh, All right. to wrap this up. Glenn, thanks for coming back <laughs> for the first time ever. I think I, I, I think I successfully taped it this time, and I hope you this time will turned on your button. Okay, well, knock on wood. Glenn, uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, love to all the dogs in your house. I will, I will convey that. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Bye, Cheers. Glenn. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Way to go, guys. Hell of a job uh, Just spreading th- compromat and disinformatia for America. Let's all do a nice round of vodka shots to celebrate w- w- the work woodka. we've done woodka. making America a uh, uh, fiefdom of Putin. This is what I've always said. It's just all we take, one shot, one take, one interview. That's Hell all we yeah. need, one recording. That's all it takes, and we've never, ever done anything else. Yep. Celebrating another... Hey, guess what? The FSB checks, they send them either way, whether it goes out or not. <laughs> My rubles look real good right now. <laughs> I'm spraying petrol on the ground. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I found it. Uh, Eric Garland's premium thing. If you're looking for in-depth conversations and no trolls, I'm starting a private channel on Twitter. That is exactly what Post Piper was. <laughs> what was, is Post Piper? Post Piper is so obscure and there's like no digital footprint of it. But back in 2010, when the Tea Party became a thing and the, there was the TCOT hashtag, you know, all the proto MAGA chuds, they uh, were very mad at the trolls on Twitter who kept insulting them. So they started a, a their own Twitter called Post Piper. And it was, it was subscription. You have Try to pay to get for that it. Post and they guarantee it's for Patriots and there are no trolls. And you don't make, you don't post tweets, you post pipes, I think. Getting, you lay pipe on up. Post Piper. Getting piped up by uh, Teacot Gert. And so these guys that we would always like harass on Teacot were like, yeah, uh, follow me on Post Piper. Get on Post Piper. No trolls there. Twitter has to pay for it. Though. You have to pay for it. Yeah, there was so much funner back then, and uh, I know, right? It was the Wild <laughs> West, and this is like uh, modern day corporate Texas. Uh, yeah, it's like it was like Deadwood, and then now Hearst has shown up. Yeah. <laughs> and now uh, I guess today's 2018 libs are again the mirror image of 2010 Teacots. Yep. yep. 
Get on the Eric Garland private Twitter feed. No <laughs> trolls. This is not something you can promise because uh, we are going to join this feed. A reminder that we were kicked off Eric Garland's Patreon at the fifty <laughs> at the fifty dollar a month level. We were the only subscriber because we wanted to get on his personal Skype calls. Yeah. And, and he realized the grift too soon and we were our own our subscription to him was canceled. Yep. And by the way, Eric Garland still has a Patreon going. He has about three hundred Patreons, uh, and he hasn't produced a single thing. Not a one. Not okay, a wait, single thing. A, okay, so there's a screenshot of it. It's uh, it's called Game Theory Today. Yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. Yes. Bio, that sounds like a Chris Morris bit. The bio <laughs> is Strategic Intelligence. Yes. Cognitive and Decision Sciences. Oh, that's the best stuff. Oh, and the a best sense stuff. of humor. Oh, Strategic Intelligence is by far the best intelligence. And there's one sample. Get your tactical intelligence out of my face. <laughs> there's one sample tweet here that just says, Thread. It's a little loose in terms of direct ties, but hey, why is there so much weird foreign banking tied to agriculture in Devin Nunes' district? Oh, boom! <laughs> Hell yes! Foreign uh, companies paying for agricultural products in the United States. Uh, I am going to be... I'm going to subscribe at the highest possible level because I want to read the Robert Owen Menneker vertical. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Well, I hope the other thing he was doing right before he announced this which should give you an idea of what you're going to get is he was pointing out that all of these news outlets were putting out stories critical of the FBI all on the same day during this memo thing showing that it's clearly Russian paid for disinformatskaya. And the evidence for it was a New York Times article about how the FBI knew about Larry uh, Nassar and his molestations for a year and did nothing about it. Uh, and according to Garland, pointing that out is uh, Putin propaganda. Well, I mean, you have to wonder. I mean, it's very coincidental that this is all happening at the same time. Just how it's like very coincidental that every, literally everyone on Twitter makes fun Isn't of Isn't it Garland. coincidental that on the same day, the Atlantic, Business Insider, and BuzzFeed, and my toaster all call me insane? <laughs> uh, so, like, his pitch for this is a long screen about that, about the media hit jobs on him. And he says, on this private channel, I intend to dig deep, get dorky, and cut loose with like-minded people who want robust discussions of news, politics, intelligence, and other matters without the presence of foreign agents, bots, trolls, and members of the media hoping for the most minor error to jump on. Guys, it's time for some game theory today. Yes. I remember when... He's a good pitchman. You guys remember when Ello started? Oh, yeah. Ello, the sort of boutique social network yes. with no ads. Yes. Uh, everyone joined Ello for about a week. And uh, my my troll of Ello was I would just take screenshots of ads on other social media platforms and post it to Ello. <laughs> so for Eric Garland's feed, I'm just going to screenshot everything and just pirate it and put it on tor- a BitTorrent site. <laughs> the daily Eric Garland torrent upload. And just uh, we're going to be pirating all of his best tweets. I, I, I want to go to I want to go to a torrent site and and give my computer aids just to get Eric Garland's <laughs> fucking tweets. His strategic thought. His strategic thoughts. Coincidence that I've been asked to leave every single Chipotle in my town? I don't think so. Uh, look into who funds Chipotle. Yeah. where's that money coming from? Where is that money coming? Eric from, has seventy eight followers already. God damn it! Ten dollars a pop. Yeah. That's almost a grand. Yeah, I can't knock the hustle, though. I kind of uh, guess you know, he's, these a, he's are inflated, a real, though. I assume he's giving out a lot of you know, He's a real... You know, Eric Garland 
is an enemy, but like respect where it's due. He's a content king. He's, Dude, a, he's not an enemy. He's he, an ally. He's, he's okay. He's, he's a, a fellow he's content a, king. He's a, a, a wise man <laughs> whom we come to for advice every once in a while. Uh, he's one of the, the Joseph Campbell figures you in know the hero's he is? journey. <laughs> you know what he is? He's a thought. He's a, God. He's a goddamn snack. Uh, okay, uh, we want to want to plug anything before we go. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, as we told you last week, we're going on a West Coast tour. California love. Tickets are still available in Los Angeles, the region, March twenty third. San Francisco, Victoria Theater, March twenty fifth. Portland, Seattle sold out. They are sold out, but we are planning on adding more dates and interesting stuff so if you are in portland or seattle and haven't gotten a ticket yet do not kill yourself there's still time for you to see us yeah we will likely have shows at both those locations in addition but for those of you in los angeles and san francisco go to chapotraphouse.com for tickets okay guys all right all right see ya las vidania bye Come on.